hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. You're listening to Queer Money, episode 197. Today, we're talking with Allegra Brantley, founder of FactoraWealth.com and the new Coffee and Coin podcast. Allegra has an awesome mission. Her mission is to get 1 million women to $1 million in net worth. On this episode, you'll hear how you can join her in reaching that $1 million in net worth. We make the Queer Money Podcast for you, so please email your money questions to questions at debtfreeguys.com or post them in the Queer Money Facebook group, and we may answer it in an upcoming episode. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Want to do better with your money? Of course you do. That's why Capital One Cafes and Capital One Bank offer free financial education through their money workshops and money coaching programs. Topics like tax basics, grocery shopping tips, and vacation planning are covered regularly. Go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash cafe for more info. The foundation for living fabulously, not fabulously broke is a good credit score. A good credit score can save you tens of thousands of dollars over your lifetime. A bad credit score can cost you tens of thousands of dollars and cause you to miss out on other great opportunities. Sign up for the free Improve or Build Your Credit Score powered by Experian Boost and watch your credit score improve by 5 to 50 points in 15 minutes. Go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash boost. Now, on with the show. So welcome, Allegra Brantley, to Queer Money. We're excited to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. So we love your mission. You have this mission to make 1 million women their net worth $1 million. How did you come up with that? What was the inspiration? How achievable is that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think for starters, millions are exciting. I think (laughs) everyone may not want to admit it out loud, but I think there is a desire to have a lot of money, especially living in the States. (laughs) Everything is about money and consumerism and you need money to buy things. So I think it starts out with people wanting to have money. But the truth of the matter is, I think nowadays, a million dollars is really baseline for a comfortable retirement. And I actually hate the word retirement. I'm not going to use it in 2020, but it's still 2019. (laughs) I'm going to switch that out for financial freedom because I think it's really weird that we spend our whole life working so hard just to accumulate a pile of money that we're not sure is quite right to dwindle down until we die and maybe have enough left to give to some others. I think it's all kind of sad. So I think what is exciting is building a net worth and building a legacy that can be long lasting. And so I like big goals and I cannot lie. (laughs) I decided a million women to a million dollars in net worth is what I'm going to strive for. And I'm not stopping until I get there. Nice. I love it. Yeah, I do too. I, I love the the idea of this $1 million. Yeah, I think it, it represents a lot to a lot of individuals in society having that million dollars. But it reminds me of the Jim Rohn quote where he said, make a million dollars, not for the sake of the money, but for what you will become in the process. 
And really, when we think about it, what, the kind of people we have to become to be able to create that kind of net worth are more aspirational, more goal-oriented, or um, have some sort of drive, and which that oftentimes leads into so many other areas of our life. When you see somebody who's aspirational about building a business or acquiring a certain amount of money, they oftentimes that gets infectious and that bleeds over into those other areas. I love that. Brooke Costello says something similar. She's, she talks about asking people, would they rather win a million dollars or would they rather make a million dollars? And a lot of times people will say, well, hey, I'd take the lottery any day. But if you do that, you can't recreate it. But if right. you learn how to make a million dollars, you can do it again and again. And all of that knowledge you can use in other areas too. Absolutely. I think it's like 78% or maybe it's 87% getting confused, but of lottery winners end up going broke after they win their millions. So winning it doesn't actually guarantee that you'll ever be able to retain it. Uh, And like you said, definitely won't be able to replicate it. Absolutely. So I think you touched on this a little earlier, and I kind of want to go back to that, is that a lot of people might not want to admit that they won a million dollars, but a lot of people do want to have a million dollars. Why do you think we have sort of this adverse relationship with wanting money, but also feeling like money is evil and people who got there are evil? (laughs) Yes. So I think that Rami Sethi says it really well that people have money scripts and we develop these from childhood and the world around us. And I think it's really easy, depending on the family that you come from, whatever their views are on money can become yours. And so you might have a family that says money is greed or money doesn't grow on trees or all of these different things. And then that starts to become how we feel and see the world. And so I think a lot of people have that belief that it's greedy to have a lot of money. It's not fair if you have all and someone has less. But back to Jim Rohn's point, you know, having a million isn't just about for you. It's like, what can you do with a million dollars? So many people want to give back. Well, I can't give back if I can't afford me. I can give back if I can afford me and have more. Right. That is awesome. Yeah, one of the things, well, 100%. One of the points we bring home a lot on our uh, Queer Money Live tour talk last summer was that good people with money can simply do more good in the world, like Lisa Nichols said, and um, without having that flexibility with your income to be able to take care of yourself and someone else, you can't take care of someone else. And very often we're we kind of, I think the, the next point we're we're here to talk about is you know you came from a, a similar background to what we did. You were burned out in corporate America, even though you were earning six figures, you were living paycheck to paycheck, and you sort of realized that the American dream wasn't what it was made out to be. But we sort of see martyrdom in pursuing that kind of a lifestyle, even though we might not necessarily be happy or be able to give back to the full extent we'd like to. Yeah, and I think that this is a lifestyle that's really ingrained in U.S. society. I think we're we're kind of told if you go to school and then you go to college, you'll get a job and then you'll have everything you want. (laughs) (laughs) You can just call in for the next 50 years. And I think we do strive for that early in our life. And then a lot of young people, I mean, especially the millennials that I work with, they start to feel like, okay, but what, what else? You know, I mean, I was absolutely obsessed in an unhealthy way with some of the jobs that I had in New York. And when I go back and I think about, I mean, my first job, real job was at the Estee Lauder companies in marketing. I was a glorified administrative assistant and I was willing to have sleepless nights over 
mass producing makeup. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with makeup and buying it. What I'm saying is that what isn't great about our society is that we don't question a lot of things. We just live with the discomfort. So it took me 10 more years to wake up and really think, hey, does this American status quo way of life work for me? Or maybe is there another alternative that I can start to look for? Well, and don't you think that's kind of what we're having a lot of discussions nationally right now. And I think part of the the fire movement is sort of part of that questioning, is this status quo? Is this dream that we've been sold? Is it really all that it's made out to be? And is it really all that we want? And I think maybe up until recently, there haven't been large pockets in our country or large communities in our country who have been asking this question. And I feel like now kind of seems to be an opportune time that people are, are asking that. Yeah, I think the FIRE community has been great for that because that was some of the first insight I had into, wow, these people are trying to break free from their corporate jobs as soon as they can by stockpiling index funds. And and then, you know, they'll be retired way earlier than I would be if I continue on this path. But then I also don't think that that's necessarily all it's cracked up to be because my belief is that it's not... What's the um, quote from A League of Their Own? If it wasn't hard, it wouldn't be great, right? Like (laughs) life is meant to be challenging. I don't know if you can just throw all your money in index funds and like blink and then you're good to go. I mean, and, and actually a lot of the people in the fire community, I don't think that this is talked about enough. They have really um, lucrative blogs and side hustles and quite frankly, passive income from their businesses that is really pushing them to the next level. So that salary kind of is what they saved to begin with and invested, but now they're in the business asset class, which is quite frankly, the best one to be in. I mean, you can't ever open up a Forbes 400 list and not see that 90% or more are entrepreneurs. Right. And really the way I look at building wealth and how I teach it to women is there's three asset classes and there's a lot in each bucket, but effectively the buckets are paper assets. So that's your stock market, bonds, real estate, and that's all types, you know, from REITs, which is technically paper in a way because you're not holding the underlying asset, but rental properties, Airbnb, house hacking, there's a ton of opportunities there and a system that's built to loan you money for purchasing houses. And then there's business. And business is so, I mean, it's just the gamut, right? You know, you hear about Bill Gates and the likes of Steve Jobs starting companies in the basements, but then now there's all these people who have online businesses that are thriving. So there's just, there's so much that can be done outside of that kind of go-to salaried W-2 role. Nice. We've heard that a lot on this show, those three different asset classes. And it seems like the more you're able to have a combination of all of those asset classes to various degrees, um, the more you can achieve that financial independence um, that you were talking about earlier or that retire early part of the FIRE community definition. David and I have struggled. We don't necessarily consider ourselves part of the FIRE community because I don't know that we've actually ever worked harder in our lives than when we started our, working on our own business. Um, mm-hmm. So we, David coined the term um, financial independence, retire entrepreneur. <laughs> I love that. That's so much more fitting for what's really happening here. Right. It is. <laughs> and I think to your point, the the last 
portion there of the of the three buckets, the owning your own business, which I think is what many of the women that you are encouraging to get their net worth to a million dollars or more are going to participate in, which we definitely need more women entrepreneurs. But that is the real opportunity. It's very rare that you buy a stock and it goes up by thousands of percent uh, in just a few years. It's very rare that you can get in on that. But it's Apple or Chipotle. But But the business opportunity where we have seen individuals from little kids creating things that go on shoes becoming millionaires, you know, at 12, 16, 18 years old, to individuals who are sometimes in their 60s or 70s when they finally reach that momentum to start their own business and they go out and do it and then become millionaires. You know, that's, that's the thing. It's almost like you can't be too young or too old to start your own business today. That's what I love about wealth building. It's not a zero sum game. Just because I start a company doesn't mean you can't start a company, even right. if it's in the same space. And I think that that is what makes it so exciting. Absolutely. So I was checking out your website and you had some statistics on there that were shocking, but also too too similar to what I think what David and I experienced for our community. But women, no surprise, are, are paid less than their straight peers. Uh, I'm sorry, women are paid less than um, their male counterparts. Oftentimes, women uh, become the default caregivers for aging parents, uh, similar to the queer community, um, as we talked about with Cameron Huddleston a couple of uh, weeks back. And then Many in our community struggle to sort of overcome the constant marketing that is being bombarded at us to live the fabulous lifestyle, to have all the amazing bags and shoes and and to have all the exterior appearances of success, a la Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and, and RuPaul's Drag Race. But it seems like that's you're saying that, that a lot of that is similar to what your community or the, your demographic struggles with. Do you see a lot of similarities between the two demographics? In your work? I do. I mean, from from what you have said, and also I listened to the Cameron Huddleston um, <laughs> interview, and it was really illuminating because I hadn't thought about the fact that if LGBTQ couples don't have kids, that there is more of an expectation that, oh, well, you don't have kids, so you should take care of our parents because we do. And that really shocked me. And that's a, a lot of weight to be put on <laughs> to anyone. Right. Yeah. So from your perspective, this is something that David and I have been challenged with. What are you doing or what do you think can be done to help change the status quo, to get more parity in pay, to stop assuming these sort of societal burdens that it's our responsibility to take care of the kids or the, or the parents and to maybe overcome some of that very uh, mischievous marketing? How are you changing your community's perspective on all of that? Absolutely. Number one, financial education, learning how to build wealth. Because truly, if you are making an income and you are not drowning in consumer debt, you have the opportunity to be investing so that you can disconnect your time from the money you can earn and allow your money to make money. So I think really what what we do in Factora is kind of help women get financial alignment on Ensuring where they are spending is actually 
kind of Marie Kondo it. Like, does that bring you joy or is that expenses that can be repurposed towards your future and buying assets that can bring you additional passive income? And then if you have more wealth, when your parents are aging, it's going to be less stress on everyone. Yeah. It's interesting because I think of um, Paula Perhatch how you say her name, who wrote the Medium article about needing to have an F off fund or you know, just being able to say to mm-hmm. a boss or a company that my life is more important than service to you and I'm going to hit the door because of whatever the circumstances may be. But it, it almost kind of sounds like you're kind of taking that a little bit further with this idea is it's it's not just your work situation, it's your whole life. You need to have that financial wherewithal to be able to say, I'm going to take my life in the direction that I want it to go in. And the only way that you can do that is by starting with financial education. Absolutely. Financial literacy is so imperative and it is something that I believe is purposely not really taught in the school system. Because if it's taught in the school system, then we have a little bit more wherewithal to be conscious of our decisions. I mean, I think it's preposterous that 18-year-old kids sign student loan checks, bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars to their education before they really understand the value of a dollar and they're swimming in debt before they even get to start their life. I mean, that's a bubble that's going to absolutely... I have no idea how that's going to end up, but I don't think it's going to be good. And I think that... You know, I I see it all the time. If I think back to me, I remember getting solicited in college to open up a credit card. Great. And then I actually found out my mom had opened up credit cards in my name because she wasn't doing very well financially and she was doing the best she could. So she opened up credit cards in my name because she was tapped out and then was pulling the cash off of those to pay my rent while I was in school, telling me, just focus on your education. You don't need to work yet because that's what had been done for her oh, wow. back to those money scripts, right? So she felt like her parents paid for her school. She needed to help me there and not stress me out. But it was more stressful on graduation when she gave me, <laughs> you know, four credit cards and said, all right, they're pretty slammed. You know, this Ouch. is on you now. <laughs> and, I, and I slammed the last few hundred dollars. I remember at American Apparel buying all red clothes. I don't know why. I'm a redhead. That's But I did it. (laughs) And then I had to learn out what APR was the hard way. I mean, I had no idea how credit cards really worked. I didn't understand that this is borrowed money. And, you know, truth be told, I think that your credit score is kind of like your adult GPA. It's very important for American society. If you want to leverage any capital for a car, a home, et cetera, you need to be in good credit standing. But no one gets taught how they work. That's wild. Yeah, we we uh, we we're almost forced to learn through the school of hard knocks, right? Because mm-hmm. our parents are either ill-informed or embarrassed and don't want to educate us because then we're going to ask questions of them. And as you said, the the school systems don't teach it, maybe by design to keep us ignorant to, to a certain degree. And it certainly doesn't seem like any of our uh, politicians, political leaders have any desire to uh, force the education into the school system. So uh, we're all being left to fend for ourselves. And we know that when you're thrown into the deep end, there's going to be a lot of people who do not survive when it comes to learning how to swim. (laughs) Yes, definitely. For those who do 
learn it though. I mean, so for me, I mean, I, I remember thinking, okay, I don't know what APR means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I need to figure this out. I remember I had a roommate in college who had a, a family situation that left her paying for herself since she was 16. She was very forthcoming with what I could do. I could get a 0% interest card, switch it here, you know, all of these little tactics that ended up being really, really important, but I would have never learned otherwise. And I would have probably fallen victim to, because I was getting kind of debt consolidation calls, yo, put, you know, put everything here. And I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded okay. It was like, right. well, I'd rather pay one bill than four. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, no, don't, don't do that, do this. But this is why it's so imperative that financial literacy not only be elevated in our society, but have a lot more empowerment around it, which is why I wanted to do it this way. Because basically, the company I've created, Factora, is really just the simplified, betterfied version of what I had to go through, all those hard knocks on my own. And I had to do it alone, which was really, you know, working in a vacuum when you're learning all this stuff about finance is not great because there's so many things you could do, but how do you know which one's right? And if you don't have any sounding boards, it's really scary to make those decisions. Yeah. So this information's out there. It's not necessarily well put together. I'm trying to put it together well, but more important than anything, I want to put it with a community so that you're not doing it alone, so that women can lean on other women. And and I also notice all the time, have you ever heard um, kind of from back in the day, men were the hunters, women were the gatherers? Well, I think to myself, I get it now because I'll watch some of my guy friends come together, hang out and say, oh, this stock's going up. Great. The other one opens up his Robinhood app, dumps a few hundred dollars in there. (laughs) And I'm just thinking to myself, my girlfriend group would never do that. They need to feel a lot more comfortable in what's happening, get more information first, make sure that they're not going to lose money, which you really can't guarantee, obviously, in investing. But we kind of need to gather together to information share before we feel comfortable. And that's why I think that Financial literacy shouldn't just be out there. It should be out there in an empowering, collaborative way. Capital One Cafes are inviting places where you can bank, plan your financial journey, engage with your community, and enjoy Pete's coffee. You don't have to be a Capital One customer to get all these benefits. Go to debtforguys.com forward slash cafe for more info. So I'm curious, you're helping your community who has a lot of paradigms that aren't serving them. We're helping our community that has a lot of paradigms that aren't serving them. How receptive are women in general to this message of financial independence, of financial empowerment? It's interesting because I think financial empowerment resonates well. I think financial independence does not. I think a lot of women, when they come to Factora, they're making good money, but there's almost a big guilt because they're spending a lot of money too. Some of them might have consumer debt because we live in this world of instant gratification and you think, oh, well, I'm making six figures at work. So the iPhone 10x or whatever it is now is out. I'll just get it. I'm sure I can afford it. I pay off my credit card bills. And that can go all well and fine for a while until emergencies happen. And and back to when you were saying that the F off fund, I mean, yes, absolutely. That's the most imperative fund you can have. I call it an emergency fund, but it is exactly the same. You know, it's the same Mm -hmm. because it's not when emergencies, or excuse me, it's not if an emergency is going to happen, it's when. For example, one week ago, I was hospitalized for a cat bite. (laughs) 
in my backyard, we were having a party and a cat was the only person not on the guest list that, that crawled on through. <laughs> we all pet this cat. I fed this cat pate. It had no reason to bite me. And yet it bit me. And since we didn't know the owners, I've been going through a series of rabies shot. My hand was infected. I had to get admitted to the hospital. I'm actually not on insurance right now because my partner and I are getting new insurance January 1st. So we made me loving and living personal finance and knowing how important <laughs> insurance it is. We made the executive decision to go without for just a very short window. And lo and behold, you get bit by a cat. But I don't have to worry because I have that FOF or emergency fund on hand that's not going to throw the rest of my financial life into a crisis. And I want that for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I think our community seems to have this this struggle where we have received a lot of comments that debt is just a way of life, or that they almost seem to have this perspective that anybody that's trying to help them with financial independence or financial security, wellness, is almost sort of selling snake oil. They don't necessarily trust it. But anytime a credit card company will come at them with all these amazing promotions that they can allegedly get for free, they sign right on the dotted line. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I... I... Again, I just think that we, we've gone so far in one direction that's really scary that the only aid I feel is available is financial literacy. And it's hard to do it, right? If people are already distrusting. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we have a very skeptical, I think, society these days. We don't trust a lot of things. Uh, we don't trust our politicians. We don't trust our media. We don't trust our institutions. So unfortunately, I think we just gravitate towards what seems to provide the most and the easiest gratification, which isn't necessarily what's in our best interest. Yeah, absolutely. So you focus a lot, at least from what I can tell, on live events. Uh, is that true? And if so, uh, why and how? <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually have a background in live events. So that's probably how that came to be a part of Factora. But, but honestly, I think that it's all about community. I, I really recognize that. So so maybe I'll take it back and say this. I kind of started my foray into finance and personal finance world by becoming a salary negotiation coach accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> I was very underpaid at a job in New York and the boss of that company or my boss left and just something came over me and I thought, okay, well, they're leaving. So maybe some of their salary can come to me and I've been doing such a good job. And anyways, I went through this really long ordeal trying to negotiate up my salary and it ended up working. And I got $25,000 added to my base salary in a sales role at wow. a company. Nice. It was so exciting that I wanted to go out and share this knowledge. Ultimately, I realized, well, hey, if I've been that drastically underpaid, I'm probably still underpaid and I should hit the road. <laughs> but I turned around and I started telling all of my friends like, hey, this is what I did. You can get on salary.com, Payscale, Glassdoor. You can look at job titles that are exactly yours or other ones in the industry that are similar. You can find a range. You can use that range to go back and say, I'm not within it. I'm below it. We need to adjust. And it started working. And so I'm helping women make more money at their jobs only to realize that I'm also helping them spend more money when they earn more from their jobs. Mm -hmm. And I was no different. I got that $25,000 raise. 
I got a new apartment in New York. And of course, I love how moving up in New York means moving down a flight of stairs or two. So, (laughs) you know, it was was basically the same apartment, a floor below, but it felt better. Um, (laughs) And I went on a trip, bought a, you know, nice handbag, and it was kind of all said and done for. $25,000 layered over 12 months with taxes, et cetera. You know, it, it goes quickly. Lifestyle creep is so real. And that's another thing I, I try and talk to women about to not live beyond your means and to make sure that there's room between what you earn and what you spend so that you have money for the most important expenditure, which is future you. That's yeah. buying assets, that's buying investments that, that can cash flow and produce that wealth, that nest egg that we want to build. But after the salary negotiation coaching, I realized, okay, I'm actually doing, I thought I was doing women a service. I might be doing them a disservice because just because you make more money doesn't mean you all of a sudden have more money. I was just spending it and I was watching them do the same. And not a shocker, this is what we're being implored to do. It's everywhere. Right. You know, I open up my inbox and it's like, you got to buy this new Glossier product. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to fit in tomorrow. I'm joking with it, but there is a lot of pressure. So that's when I went on this personal finance revolution and I thought, gosh, I'm, I'm getting towards 30 and I make such good money, but I spend all of it. What am I going to do? How am I going to stop seeing all of my accounts basically get to zero each month? And yeah, my belief is that you have to find that financial literacy, whatever is going to work for you. I do recommend obviously communities because then you have accountability and accountability is what truly makes the difference. But that's why I went from helping women earn more to helping women have more. And that means how much do we need in our emergency fund? Great. We've got that. Now we have more money that we were putting there. We're going to repurpose that into investments. And you can get that same joy from watching your investments grow as you may have gotten from, you know, purchasing consumer goods that you're excited about. Yeah. It's interesting. Your story is, uh, it, it sounds very similar to some of the decisions that John and I made the very early on in the podcast. There was an episode where we talked about our choice between making more money or paying off debt. And many people have this assumption that everything will be fine if I just make more money. And uh, I looked back to when I started my my career, when I got my first full-time paying job, and I was making slightly over $17,000. And uh, I had roughly about $2,000 in credit card debt. And nine years later, I was getting laid off from the job that I had been working at the same company for nine years because they were relocating and I didn't want to go to Kansas City. And at that point, my salary had doubled to $34,000, but my credit card debt increased to $14,000. Um, wow. So we have this, many of us have this uh, this story in our heads that everything will be fine if I just earn more. But more often than not, we do. We all do what you did, is the, and that is we spend up to and many times beyond the increase in salary that we get. We find out we're going to get a bonus, and we have it spent before we actually get the bonus check. We find out we're going to get a, a salary increase, and immediately our spending goes up, but the salary increase doesn't happen for a couple of months. And so we're constantly trying to catch up to where we think our income is at, and then we always forget about the fact that taxes, hopefully retirement money is coming out. There's additional money coming out for benefits, things like that. So 
That's why we chose to focus on the debt first because it meant that we had to figure out what was going on with our spending. And then once we figured out what was going on with our spending, the two or three years after that, as our salary increased, our lifestyle didn't creep and that helped us pay off our debt so much faster. I am nodding so intensely. <laughs> I already have a neck ache. Yeah. Yes, you, you said it so much more succinctly than I was attempting to, but it really is that feeling of if I just make more, my problems will be solved. Just the next level, if I get to the next level. And I think that that is also very human and definitely very American. We just think if we can get to that next job role or that next you know, place in management or whatever it is, then everything will be better. And then you get there. And of course, it wasn't magic and it's not. So we really have to look inward and try and discover what's going on. And I think you really hit it on the nose when you said figuring out the spending and what's what's causing that and how to get that in check. And that's why I'm all about financial alignment when I teach women about you know how to spend that's in alignment. Because if you can get your finances into alignment, then you don't need to feel guilty about making I'm so sick of the latte factor conversation and like, you know, women shouldn't buy this or that. No, women should buy and anyone should buy anything that they choose, but they should be thoughtful about those purchases and it should be allocated for it after they are saving and investing adequately, which again, everyone can and should be doing if they're not in consumer debt. Yeah. Yeah. That goes back to our colleague, Paula Pant's uh, philosophy. Uh, afford anything. Most of us can't afford anything, but we can't afford everything. So what's incumbent upon you is to figure out what is most important to you and save and invest appropriately for that. So you can have what's, it sounds like what you're saying is in alignment with what your values are um, and not necessarily what's in alignment with what Maybelline thinks or what your friends <laughs> think or uh, what mom and Kendall dad Jenner. <laughs> Kendall Jenner. I don't know. Kendall Jenner has something going on. We might not all follow her. <laughs> she just made a $6 million. <laughs> so I, I think I could probably at least figure out the, the first recommendations. It sounds like you're a big advocate for people, for women, especially to find a community where they can start talking about finances. What two to four recommendations would you give to someone who's just kind of dipping their toe in this discussion beyond just finding a community? Any recommendations? Yeah. So kind of how to start talking about money. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a great place to start, and some might not agree, but is with your colleagues. If you want to know whether or not you're being paid equitably, find that colleague that you've had a relationship with and you trust and start going there because that's usually what kind of turns up the information that's been missing that you can't get online. And if you really think about it, who doesn't want you to talk amongst yourselves, that's your company. Right. <laughs> Obviously, they don't they don't want any inequity to be revealed. And so they've made it kind of an unwritten rule because it's not necessarily legal. But that was how I found out I was grossly underpaid in my career was having a colleague that I trusted and say, hey, where are you? And by the way, if you're the colleague that ends up making more, maybe you'll do them a service and it will light a fire under them to figure out, hey, I need to get this adjusted. So step one, <laughs> although you know it might be a little controversial, I'm totally for talking to a colleague. Maybe not necessarily at work in the lunch hall, but you know, have <laughs> coffee and, right. and, and get the conversation going. 
And then I think talk to friends. This is why we have friends, right? And and it's so taboo to talk about money, yet we'll talk about sexual positions, politics, any sort of clickbait crazy article that's going on in the world, and we won't really discuss our financial lives. So I think the best way to start those conversations off is to open up about something you're doing. So maybe I'm putting together an emergency fund and I'm wondering, you know, how many months of fixed expenses or or just how much I should have in it. Do you have an emergency fund? How did you come to your number or how are you working to save it? Or what type of account are you saving it in? Things like that, where you share a little bit first. And then, wonderful. well, and then I was going to say the other best way to really start getting comfortable talking about money and, and working with your money and being proactive with it is to write down your goals. I have on my website, when people fill out the wait list to be in a factorial circle, I say, do you have your financial goals outlined and are they written down somewhere? And it's always no, but I've been meaning to. Mm-hmm. And that no, but I've been meaning to is so significant because the biggest changes will come when you actually identify your goals, write them down. And at least when they're written down, you have now started the process of holding yourself accountable to them. And then the next step after that is share it with a friend. So now we're, we're sharing, here's mine. You're welcome to share yours. But now a real live person knows your goals and you're being held accountable in like a way more powerful way. And we're just doing that on steroids in Factora because you have a whole circle that you're sharing with. Wonderful. I love that. That's actually one of our most downloaded tools on our website is our hopes and dreams worksheet. And then what that does is it helps you uh, walk through the steps to figure out what is most important to you. And most people, they realize that they're, to your point, they're not spending in alignment with what's, what is most important to them. And for David and me, when we did our spending analysis and realized how we were spending our money, we realized actually we were making great money, even though we felt like we were poor. It's just that we were spending it in ridiculous areas and not necessarily with how we actually wanted to spend it. Um, so we, totally. to your point, when you can align all that, everything, just the ability to pay off your debt becomes a lot easier. The ability to achieve happiness and financial security all become a lot easier when you start focusing on, on, on what's most important to you. Yeah, absolutely. So as we have been and are, you've been a partner of Capital One. Can you tell us a little bit about your partnership with Capital One and, and why you continue to partner with them? Sure. So I realize now we kind of skipped on the the live events question I, I started to say, but it works perfectly here because we host a series called Coffee and Coin. And really, when I was starting Factora, I just recognized that, okay, this is going to be a private, intimate group where women can share their numbers, come up with their goals and be held accountable for achieving them, breaking them down, etc. learning all about these wealth building assets. Okay. That's happening there. But again, it's still just with this group. How do we publicly have a forum where we can talk about money? And it's fun. So I went to a coffee shop near me in Austin. And I mean, right next to me because I'm still a New Yorker and that I don't drive. So (laughs) usually my world is like a two mile radius. But I found the one with the best coffee near me in East Austin. And I asked if I could host this idea I had. And they said, sure. So we had our first coffee and coin, wow, last November, and 30 women came to hear me interview another woman on her financial life. And I told them, 
in advance, we're not just going to talk about money in a loftly conceptual way. I'm going to ask her her actual numbers. What is your net worth? What is your salary? What are your debts? What are your fixed expenses? What's your strategy to get out of debt if you have it? How have you built wealth? What do you do in the stock market if you invest there? How did you come up with that? You know, what accounts do you use? Like real stuff that no one shares. And I think that was exciting enough to fill that that room with 30 people. And ultimately, I started talking to Capital One about this women and wealth conversation and that there's really a need for it. And they were totally on board with letting me use their downtown Capital One cafe space in Austin, which I thought to myself, okay, great. I'm getting 30 people here, but you can fit 130. So how am I going to do that? <laughs> and it was waitlisted all three times we did it this year. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. So it just it just showed me that women really do want to hear this. And and I think that it's a great way to start the conversation about money simply by hearing someone else do it. Oh look, she sat on that stool, she shared her entire <laughs> financial life and lightning didn't strike her down. So maybe <laughs> it's not so terrible after all. And I can share some of these things. Time and time and again, we come back to the idea that just starting the money conversation is sort of the first step to achieve financial wellness or financial security. It's just uh, so many of us are afraid to talk about it, and we're keeping all of our our fears and knowledge close to our chest, and we can't either be corrected or pass on what we, what we do know that could help people. So just get that conversation yeah. started. And once you start talking about it, you just end up thinking about it more and thinking can ultimately lead to the conversation, doing it, digging in and dealing with it, right? Like the way you were saying that you sat down and looked at your spending finally, like there had to be another way. The more you think about it, the more you start to get ready, those like beginning stages of okay, I have to do something about this. And then if there is, you know, a community to do it with, maybe it helps people get started a little faster is my hope. Absolutely. So that's a great segue into our final question here. If anyone wants to join the Factora Circle, how do they keep up with you, the circle? Uh, where are you on, on the interwebs and all that? Absolutely. So we have a website. It's just factorawealth.com. And you can go to factorwealth.com forward slash join to sign up for the waitlist for our next set of circles, which are opening. Oh, they start February 19th. So they'll open at the end of January, early February. And really those circles are, I live train an hour of the session and then everyone breaks out into those intimate groups so that you can truly make money friends and have someone you can go to, to be like, ah, I was thinking I was going to open up this brokerage account. Which one have you got? Or, you know, do you like this or that? Because we just don't have really those people to, to have these conversations with. So that's how you get knowledgeable about Factor Circles to see if those are for you. And then I also have on our website, just right on the homepage, we created a self-care for your money guide because we love that women are really interested in self-care and it's great. Take those bubble baths, you know, burn those candles, sage your house, all of it. But I think that we should apply that same self-care to your money. So this guide is a great way, especially now that we're not just going into a new year, we're going into a whole new decade. So what could you do in 10 years? You know, I love the quote, we overestimate what we can do in a day, a week, a month, but we totally underestimate what we can do in a year, a decade, <laughs> two decades. Right. So 
And I think, again, that goes back to the financial goals and not really having them written down. Like, I know I want to have an olive grove in five years from now. So I'm working towards that. But some people may not have given themselves the creative space to figure out what they want. Anyways, this self-care guide helps you look back 10 years where you were, currently where you're at, and where you want to be in 10 years. So anyone should get that that's just getting started wanting to dig into their relationship and mindset with money. And then on Instagram, we're just at factora underscore wealth. Oh, and we are starting a podcast as well. <laughs> we're, we're actually recording the first one tomorrow. So I purposely put yours right before mine so I could keep learning what you guys do because you do it <laughs> so you. well, obviously, 184 episodes in at this point. Yep. Oh, you're dating us. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it's really, really, it's so incredible. And I hope that through the Coffee and Coin podcast, I can do exactly what we do at the Coffee and Coin live events and just show women that other women are willing to open up their financial trunk show you what's inside. By the way, they're enjoying talking about it. It's not like I'm pulling this out of them. Like they are happy to say, okay, uh, you know, I bought a house. I put this much down. I have a Airbnb strategy. I'm house hacking. So actually my primary residence is one of my passive income strategies. And then I can break that all down for them and they can start to get some ideas that maybe they could infuse into their own financial lives. I love it. Well, Legra Brantley, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fabulous having you uh, on Queer Money. You are so welcome, John and David. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me all the way from Spain. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Queer Money. Here's your Queer Money takeaway from this episode. Find a community such as Factorial Wealth Circle or the Queer Money Facebook group to help you raise your money game and increase your financial security. Remember, talking about money, especially with others that have similar goals as you, can inspire you to achieve your money goals and inspire others in the LGBT community. We make the Queer Money Podcast for you, so please email your money questions to questions at debtfreeguys.com or post them in the Queer Money Facebook group, and we may answer it in an upcoming episode. Thanks again, and have a great week. How does your bank support the LGBT community? Not at all? For Pride in June? Or 365 days a year? Capital One proudly supports the LGBT community throughout the year. Maybe it's time to support a bank that supports us. Go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash cafe for more info. Remember, the foundation for living fabulously, not fabulously broke is a good credit score. A good credit score can save you tens of thousands of dollars over your lifetime. Bad credit score can cost you tens of thousands of dollars and cause you to miss out on other great opportunities. Sign up for the free Improve or Build Your Credit Score powered by Experium Boost and watch your credit score improve between 5 and 50 points in 15 minutes. Go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash boost. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.